year, and maybe there are several times in the course of a year when it's easy to hear the words of politicians. Uh, they're kind of always before us and driving down the road or on the TV or whatever. I recently read one politician's comment, and maybe it was more of a commentary. He said, if you're not worried, uh, you're not reasonable. Uh, and I think probably that was more of a commentary maybe than a comment. But when he said it, uh, I thought of, of uh, the past we've been looking at uh, somewhat extensively uh, in uh, Philippians chapter 4. And if you want to turn there, I'll try to bring my slideshow up here so, we can, so I can, we can join it together here. But in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 5, uh, Paul says, "Let your gentleness be known to all. If you are, not, if you let your gentleness be known to all men, the Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing." Uh, it seemed like Paul thought that it was unreasonable to worry. Uh, the passage in, uh, in verse five in the English Standard Version says, "Let your reasonableness be known to all men." Some translations use the word gentleness, and the New King James Version uses that. We're going to look at that word in just a few moments. We've already discussed the reasons that the Scripture gives in relationship to anxiety. We're not going to go back over those again. But certainly, Paul agreed with Jesus in the sense that to be anxious about life, was there was no real good reason for that. Uh, and in the context of the use of that term, we might make that connection from Ephesians chapter, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, and verse 6 put together. But I want to consider verse 5. You know, sometimes uh, just when you think we're moving ahead, I back up. And that's kind of what you thought we were at the end of verse (laughs) 6. No, we're going to back up to verse 5 a little bit and talk about verse 5. And Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, as I mentioned before, says, Let your reasonableness, reasonableness be known to everyone. English Standard Version says, The Lord is at hand. Are you a reasonable person? You consider yourself to be a reasonable person. And what does that mean from the standpoint of what the Bible teaches here? What is commanded in the aspect of reasonableness? Well, I want to take a couple minutes and look at this virtue from the standpoint of not only the word that's used here and how it's used elsewhere in the Scriptures, but also from the biblical perspective, the examples that are given in the text of the Scriptures, the history of the Scriptures, where God, in the characters sometimes of the Old Testament and even in other places, sort of shows us what he's looking for. The virtue mentioned in this verse is difficult to pin down from the language itself. The word translated reasonableness, as I mentioned in the English Standard Version, uh, is the word epiakese, and the Strong's Hebrew Dictionary tells us that it means that which is appropriate, or by implication, that which is mild or gentle or moderate or patient. Now you look at all those definitions, you realize uh, those things, many of those are not necessarily synonyms of one another. And one author wrote that it's one of the most untranslatable words from the Greek into the English language. You compare the different translations and the, uh, of this particular word in, Ephesians, in Philippians 4, verse 5. The King James Version used the word moderation. Let your moderation be known to everyone. Tyndale translation used softness. Reams translation says modesty. The Revised Standard Version, the American Standard Version says forbearance. The NIV in the New English Translation uses the word gentleness. The New Living Translation says we should be cons- let your consideration or be considerate to everyone. Now there's some connection between those words. We could look at them and realize that one, sometimes one might look at another. And there are similar translations um, that are given if you look at all the translations of this word in this text. But what we recognize even in this small sampling is that there's very little solidarity 
among the translators as to what this word word might actually entail, of what's being commanded. But sometimes when you get different ideas presented with a single word or a single phrase, it's helpful because what we're able to look at and looking at all the ways this word is translated into our language is we're able to give a, a composite or a comprehensive look or picture of what the word actually entails, both in its strict meaning and sometimes in its connotations. So let me share with you a compilation of comments, and uh, I don't want to uh, be tedious about this, but I think sometimes it helps to look at what several folks say about a word to be able to come to understand what he's talking about. This is a compilation of comments on the meaning of epiakese from several different sources. It describes the courtesy and graciousness which should characterize a Christian gentleman. The term indicates something of the power of yielding, the ability to give way to the wishes of others. It is a spirit that enables a man to bear injuries with patience and not demand all that's rightly his due for the sake of peace. It is the poise of soul which enables one to sacrifice his own rights, not by necessity, but out of generosity and sympathy. It is the opposite of stubbornness and thoughtlessness. It is the opposite of contention, rigor, and severity. Now you read through that and, 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 and sort of putting those things together and you recognize that this virtue is, is pretty important to the character of the Christian. That what he's talking about here is something that we don't see very broadly in the world in which we live. That if it was in the life of a person, it would show up. It would be manifest if this person really was this aspect of being reasonable. And if he really was a person that, in the use of the other translation, was a gentle person or a person that was modest or forbearing with someone else, it would show up because all of these things put together present to us, you see, a pretty important characteristic. Well, what does the passage, what does Paul say in the passage? He says, and using the English Standard Version, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I would suggest to you there are two important elements of my responsibility that are in that single line. The quality that is to be developed, the quality that Paul wants out of us and that God wants out of us, is something that I must develop. This is this reasonableness he's talking about is to be developed in me. It is mine. I am responsible to react to people, to react to circumstances in my life with this quality, with this character. It would imply, as Paul uses the term let, the aspect like he uses the term to let the spirit of Christ rest in you, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word let and use those in the King James Version used in that means to allow. It means that I have a choice. I can either respond this way or I can respond this way. So I have to let... This particular character come out in me. It has to be something you see that, uh, that, uh, that comes out maybe first by the aspect of ardent choice or maybe later on in the character development would come out naturally. But it's something that's going to have to be let loose in my life, in the circumstances of life. And so it's not just a matter of personality. We talk about, the Bible talks about gentleness and the use of this particular word, but also the word prates that's sometimes translated gentleness as a fruit of the Spirit. He's not talking about something that naturally occurs in the human spirit. That I have to learn to be this way. Now, when we plug the word reasonable into that, that becomes rather profound in terms of understanding the character that we ought to be and the type of person we ought to be. Because most of us would consider ourselves to somewhat be reasonable. There are very few of us that would admit to being unreasonable in circumstances. Most of the time, even in circumstances, we're having trouble getting along with someone or we're disagreeing with someone. We most always think that we're the reasonable one and that they're, they're, they're being unreasonable. 
It's easy to attach reasonableness to ourselves. So when we read this passage, particularly in that particular translation, we may easily dismiss ourselves as, well, that doesn't really apply to me. I'm a reasonable person. And yet what he talks about here in terms of the aspect of the command itself is something that does not come naturally, but rather must be developed. And we see that in other places in the use of this term, because this is not the only place uh, where this particular term is used. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul uses it to describe the character of the elder or the pastor or the one who would lead the church. When he gives the qualifications of those who would be elders, he says he must be gentle, not quarrelsome. And that's the word there that's translated reasonable. It's an essential quality of a leader. And if we're going to appoint people to lead us, what we want from them is we want them to be reasonable people. We don't want unreasonable and irrational. And certainly we don't want harsh or quarrelsome people to lead us. And so Paul uses the same, same word in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Later on in 2 Timothy chapter 2, he doesn't use the same word, but he makes the same point about, the, about all those who would teach the word of God, that a teacher must not quarrel but be gentle towards all. So if you're going to teach someone the truth, you've got to go about it in a gentle way. Looking to yourself, lest you also be tempted as you restore some that's fallen away. Or if you're going to teach something new to someone that they don't know, then you need to do it in a gentle way, not a quarrelsome way. In Titus chapter 3, Paul extends this particular term to apply to all Christians. He tells Titus to remind them, the other Christians that he's writing to, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable and gentle, showing all humility to all men. Now read through those words and say, yeah, that's real important, isn't it? It's certainly important to be humble and to be peaceable towards other people, to obey when we need to obey, be submissive. If that character shows through, then it's going to make things better for us. We're going to get along with people in our society. We're going to be good citizens of the country that we live in. But Paul puts us on the perspective of it being a characteristic of the Christian, the one in the spiritual kingdom of God. And that fits in well with, well with what James says. In James chapter 3, where James is contrasting the devilish evil spirit of the world, he says there is a wisdom that is from above. As opposed to the wisdom that's from earth, that's from the earth and down below, he says the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, and then he uses this word. He says it is gentle, willing to yield. Now, what, now in James' comments, what that tells me, at least one thing that it tells me, is that the characteristic we're talking about this evening originates in God. That this is a wisdom that's from above. This is not society deciding this is how we ought to all get along. This is God saying, this is the way I am, this is the way I'm telling you to live, and this is a characteristic that has to be a part of your life. Now when we think about God, we don't generally think about someone maybe who is general, that is gentle or that is willing to yield. But when we look at the, the story of the gospel, we look at the aspect of the story of redemption, we recognize that that is one of the most important characteristics of God we could ever notice. Now the other thing that is in this particular phrase is not only that this reasonableness is my responsibility, but when, when am I called to be reasonable? I have to show this reasonableness to everybody, to everyone. Now that's the difficult part of this exhortation. There are some people it's easy to be reasonable with because they're reasonable back. So you get in discussion and you realize this person's not quarrelsome, he's not contentious, he's not argumentative. He can reason and he's, he's open-minded and so it's easy to have a discussion with them. And so there's people that are considerate and they're kind. And it's easy to be kind to those people back, isn't it? But that's not where the rubber meets the road here in terms of developing this character. 
This character is developed in the aspect of the person that is not that way. The person that is unkind. The person that is inconsiderate. The person that seems to me to be the most unreasonable person on the planet. How do I get along with that person? Because they're included in this exhortation. I have to be reasonable with them as well. I have to be gentle towards those who are not gentle towards me. Well, there's some encouragement to this and certainly some hope in this when we look at the examples that are given to us because God doesn't just throw out a commandment and then not give us living examples of individuals that have done that. And so we look at Jesus himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, Paul uses this word to describe the Lord. Now I, Paul, myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so what Paul says at the beginning of chapter 10 here is that he's defending his apostleship and he's making his plea to the Corinthians to accept his apostolic authority so that he doesn't have to come over there again and rebuke them. So that he doesn't have to exercise that apostolic authority through discipline. He wants them to accept what he's saying before it comes to that. You ever done that with your kids? <laughs> you don't want it to go that far. So you try first, you see, to be considerate and gentle with them to say, let's look at this, let's reason on this because if you don't listen to what I have to say, things are going to escalate. And that's what Paul's saying. I don't want to exercise my apostolic authority here. I have every right to do it. But I want you to listen to what I have to say and I'm pleading with you based upon the meekness of Christ. Now, if Jesus isn't meek and lowly in heart, if he's not that character, then Paul's admonition makes no sense. But he's able to talk to these Corinthians, even some of them, no doubt, who were new Christians, and say to them, you know who Jesus is, you know what kind of person he is. Now I'm telling you, I'm basing my plea based upon the character of Christ. And so what Jesus did, and what Paul presents about Jesus here, is that Jesus had every right and ability to act in ways that would bring justice and discipline on others. People that had mistreated him. But he didn't do that. Peter says he was threatened and he did not threat, threaten back. That he was reproached and he did not return that with more reproach. That when Jesus was mistreated, he returned that evil with good. And certainly we see that on the cross. He, played, he praised the Father for the forgiveness of those who nailed him there. So that's the concept. That's the, the, the character here that we're talking about. But I want to look at someplace else here that gives us a picture, a living picture, of this reasonableness in action. Consider with me the powerful example of this discipline in the Old Testament character of David in 1 Samuel chapter 18. We all know about David. He's known for slaying that giant Goliath. And you go back and you recognize that that was a monumental point of David's life from going to being a, a somewhat insignificant shepherd boy to being the great uh, deliverer of Israel from the Philistine oppression and killing this great giant and becoming then, from that point on, becoming the number one candidate for the king of Israel. And David's victory over the Philistine giant was not received by everyone the same. When we think about how maybe it be how that particular element, that particular event would have been received by us had we been there. It does us good to look back and see how it was received by those of their own time. What we recognize from the text in the beginning of chapter 18 here is that the people of Israel, the general populace of Israel, were were ecstatic about what David had been able to do. They were pleased with David. David was the one who delivered them from this. He'd won this great victory. It even goes as far as to say that King, that King Saul's servants, those that were under his command, those people in his army, that they as well were very pleased with David. David. 
It goes on to tell us that the women who were there were pleased with him. They were so pleased with him that they ran out of the streets and began singing songs about David. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. So they praised David in song. They were so pleased with him. King Saul's daughter, Michael, was so pleased with him that she married him. Jonathan, King Saul's own son, was moved with David's uh, uh, willingness to obey God and his faithfulness to God. And he was so pleased with him, he gave gave him a place to stay. And he gave him his own robe. And he assisted David. It says in the text that he loved him. So you look at all the people that that are mentioned here in the first few verses of chapter 18, and you think, wow, this is... This is a big event for David. Certainly, you see, this is going to take him places that everybody was so pleased with him, he would immediately be taken to the front of everybody's attention and he would get great accolades for what he's done. But it wasn't that way because there was one person who was greatly displeased by what had happened, and that was King Saul. This caused Saul to be angry. It caused Saul to, be, to view David with great suspicion. And he sought to kill David. He was suspicious of David because he thought David was trying to take over his kingdom. He, per, he was perplexed about this. What does this mean? What will happen as a result of this? Is he really doing what's good or is this going to be something that's going to turn against me? So he's so suspicious of David that he seeks to kill him. He wants him out of the way. Now when you think about this aspect of anger and suspicion, emotions that are involved when you see this something in this other person in life. Have you ever felt that way about someone? Have you ever felt that uh, they were just out to get you? That what they were doing was really directed towards you? That this was really, a, uh, this was really something that was going to hurt you? And the other w- way to look at this, have you ever felt like David in terms of King Saul? Everybody else likes me, but this guy, he doesn't like me. And there's no matter what I can do, I can't make peace with this person. These other folks like me, but I can't do anything to make this person like me. And we seemingly can't get along. And so that's how Saul is presented here in this text. It talks about the evil spirit. And we're not going to get into that, the aspect of where that came from. And God sending the evil spirit to Saul in terms of him turning against David. But what we recognize is that what the text describes here is that Saul, King Saul, was an unreasonable man. Everybody else looked at this the way they should look at it. That God was doing doing great things for Israel through this young shepherd boy. But when you look at the text, it tells us here that Saul's attitude was much different. It says he was very angry in verse 8. That he looked on David with suspicion in verse 9. That he raved in the midst of the house. He hollered and screamed. He was afraid of David in verse 12. And he removed him from his presence. He tried to get away from him. Now all this while David is coming into the presence of Saul and soothing him by the playing of instruments. Seemingly you see that music to soothe the raving beast. But in verse 15 it says that Saul dreaded David. He looked at the future and all he could see there was David's face in the forefront. And what David might do. And so he was driven to the point in his own emotions where he sought to take David's life. He wanted to kill him. On multiple occasions, Saul tried to take David's life. In fact, you look at what happens and you realize that both David's wife and Saul's daughter Michael and Jonathan, Saul's son, saved David's life. 
They intervened in ways that uh, did not allow Saul to take David's life. And David in chapter 21 and 22 is on the run. Now you think about that thing didn't turn out the way he thought. After he killed Goliath, it would seem as though the pathway for in terms of his acceptance into Israel would be open. Everybody liked him, but the king didn't like him. And so, as David looked at his life and said, why am I here? Why am I in the wilderness of of Ziph hiding out for my life? Why am I living in caves? He was because of one man, Saul. This was the guy. If he wasn't there, things would be different. You ever felt that way about somebody? This person's in the way. If they were out of the way, things would be different. And so that's that's the situation that... David finds himself in, in relationship to King Saul. How should David react to such a dangerous and unreasonable man? How should he react to that? Well, 1 Samuel chapter 24 is a case study on Ebiakese. If you're going to look at the aspect of reasonableness and gentleness from the standpoint of what it means, this is a place to go. Saul takes 300 men, or 3,000 men, When he finds out where David's at, he takes 3,000 men and he sets out to find him, to hunt him down and to kill him. He'd been given a tip as to where David was and so he's on his way. He winds up, interestingly enough, in the very same cave where David is hiding out with his men. Now again, even Saul later on recognizes this must have been by God's design that they would end up in the same cave. But they end up in the same cave and Saul doesn't know that David's there. And David has the opportunity of a lifetime here. In verse 24, in verse 4 of chapter 24, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. You see, his men look at this and say, Oh, there's Saul over there. You can kill him right now. This is it. God God brought you to this point. You can do what he said he would allow you to do. Notice that they're not basing this on any personal animosity towards Saul, though there may have been a lot of that. What they're telling David is, this is why you're here for this moment. God is doing this for you. You just need to get rid of your enemies. He's delivering them into your hand. And David rose and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he'd cut, out, he'd cut Saul's robe. Everybody else would expect him to cut his throat. He cuts off a piece of his robe and David's upset about it. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Now look at that from the standpoint of David's reaction to this unreasonable enemy. And I wonder, would I have done this? Would I have reacted this way given this choice? And I think about David's own mind. How much mulling over did it take? How much, you see, throwing out the pros and the cons of the situation as to the situation that he's in, how much did he have to go through that before he came to the decision, no, I'm not going to kill him? But what he does do intrigues me. He doesn't kill Saul, and that's a big thing. But he cuts off the tip of his robe, the corner of it. He doesn't completely leave Saul alone. He goes right up to him, takes his knife, and cuts off his robe. Why cut off the tip of the robe? What's David's intention? I used to read this story and think that what David probably was getting getting ready to do was simply that this was a prelude to some taunting. This is the way I would think about it. I'm going to go up, I'm going to cut off his robe, and later on when I hear from him, I say, see, I could have killed you. 
You ought to thank me for this. I could have taken your taken your life. You you ought to you ought to thank me that I didn't do what I ought to have done. It could have been that David could have said, "I'm one up on you. You think you're always in control and that you have that you're going to catch me? I'm too clever for this. And let me show you why. I have this piece of cloth that says, "I'm too clever for you. I'm too good to get away. You can't ever catch me." But that's not what David did. Notice how David talks to Saul and what he does with his piece of Saul's robe. In verse 8, it says, David also rose afterward and went out of the cave and called out Saul, saying, My lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen the Lord deliver to you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eyes spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now David gives Saul a speech here, but I want you to notice what he says. Because this touches upon this aspect of what it means to be a gentle and a reasonable person. First, David says, my Lord the king. You think you'd still be calling him your king if he was chasing you down trying to kill you? You know, he's king, but he's not my king. (laughs) No, that's not what he says. He says to Saul, my Lord and my King. He does that with his face to the ground. He knew God was on his side. He knew God was not on Saul's side. But the reverence and the respect he would pay was due to the fact that God, Saul was God's anointed. Do you think Saul deserved this kind of respect? Obviously not. But there it was. This whole idea that goes around that says that respect and honor has to be earned has, I suppose, in some ways, it has a value to its sentiment in the aspect that people ought to try to earn respect. But when God tells you to respect something, He tells you to honor someone, it's not based upon whether or not they've earned or not. It's based upon whether or not God has commanded you to honor them. So the husband is to honor his wife, whether she's honorable or not. And the wife is to submit to her husband whether he's a good guy or he's a treacherous guy. Because what's at stake here is the aspect of God's commandments. And so David's willing to do that. And then what he says in verse 9 and 10 is interesting. He says, what you hear about me is not true. He says, you're listening to these other folks, and what these other folks are telling you is that I'm out to get you. These other folks are telling you that I want to take away your crown or that I'm against you. But he says, that's not true. You can see that I don't want to hurt you. Now what proved to Saul that David didn't want to hurt him? There was this piece of cloth he was holding in his hand. He said, you look at this piece of cloth. What's this piece of cloth tell you? This piece of cloth tells you that I do not want to kill you. That there is not rebellion in my heart. And then verse 13, he says to Saul, An old proverb says, Wickedness comes from wicked people. My hand will never be against you. Who has the king of Israel come after? Come after? Who are you chasing after? A dead dog? A flea? What David's saying here is he quotes an old proverb, and sometimes that's a good way to get across the thought, is to come up with an old proverb that says it. He says, wickedness comes from wicked people. And I'm not a wicked person. 
Well, how do you know that? Because I got this piece of cloth and I could have killed you. And who are you really after? You know, David had the upper hand. Certainly he did in the cave and maybe he even did now. And even though he had the upper hand, he did not choose to focus on that, on his superiority over Saul or his advantage over Saul. What he chose to focus on was the moral imperative that was going on right there before him. And that is, you see, you're my king and I'm not any threat to you at all. So he says, what did you come out here to keep? It's just to, 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 uh, to chase after, to hunt after. If Saul's honest about that, he's, he's saying to himself, I came out here to find the man who wants to take my throne from me, the man who's the most threat to me of all my life. But David says, no, that's not me. I'm a dead dog and a flea. A dead dog, not very much of a threat. And a flea isn't, can't do much harm. And that's what David's saying here. I'm harmless to you. Why would you seek to kill me? Now I want to suggest to you that in a principle, that's how the Christian reacts to the world around them that hates him. The world wants to destroy Christianity. Much of the world wants to destroy Christianity. Or there are those out there who even want to harm Christians. How's the Christian to respond to that? Paul says you'd be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The perspective you have to place before a world that wants to destroy you is that you are no harm to them. That the one who's in control here is not you. The one who's doing things is not you. This is not a personal threat to you. If God is a threat to you, that's a different issue. But I am not. And that's what David is saying. And then he says, I will let the Lord settle this issue between us. Verse 15. The Lord's the one who's in control. He will avenge. He'll take care of this. He's protected me. He'll continue to protect me. And He'll judge you. The word for avenge or vengeance there in both the Hebrew and the Greek is a word that indicates the aspect of justice. And that's what David is saying. God will take care of this justice. He'll bring that about. And then I want to suggest to you that in that piece of cloth that he cut off of, David's, of, of Saul's robe, there was a very vital message about David himself. Because what David did by the use of that piece of cloth was not to say to Saul, this is what I could have done to you, but rather to say, this is who I am. This is who I am. Do you know who I am? Saul didn't know who David was. He thought that he did. He saw him as a threat. But that was unreasonable, you see. And Saul was an unreasonable man. And so what, you see, David showed Saul about himself is that I am a reasonable man. I am a gentle man. I am a considerate man. I am a man, you see. The Epiakasi. I am a man who shows this in every way that I can to everybody that I can. So we can't help but notice David's very difficult decision to return evil with good. But that decision was not made in a vacuum. The decision he made in that cave that day was based upon his understanding of the promises of God. It wasn't because he believed in his own power. It was because he believed in the promises of God that he was able to restrain himself. He understood that Saul was there because God had put him there. And that when he ascended to the throne, it would be because of God's promises for him. And that God was working through him. 
He did not make this choice lightly, nor did he make this choice without the aspect of hope in his life. And you and I do not either. When we decide to return good for evil, when we react in a certain way to even those who are against us, we do that not with the aspect, well, I just want to be a nice person. Certainly we do want to be a nice person, but if we do it from the perspective the Bible teaches, we do it for a greater reason. And that is because by doing this, by reacting in this way, we evidence our belief and our faith in the promises of God. That God will take care of this. This is His realm. Vengeance belongs to Him. I will repay, says the Lord. And so, when we look back at this passage, Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, why should we be reasonable? You know, I'm astounded at the example of David, and certainly as it flows on into the New Testament, the example of Christ, and how they react to the evil around them. But Paul does not leave us without our own motivation here, or a motivation that he would place before us to those in in Philippi as well. Show your reasonableness, show your gentleness to all men. Why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. Now we know what the word, the term at hand means. It means near. And there are two thoughts, two possible thoughts here. I'll let you choose which one you think makes sense to you in the, in the text. That's sort of what I'm doing as I look at it. Be reasonable because the Lord is at hand. The, the one aspect is that Paul may be saying the Lord is nearby to you. That he's standing right there beside you. And therefore, He will not abandon you in this decision. He will support you in this decision. And that's sort of what David told his men, wasn't it? No, we're not going to hurt him. He's the Lord's anointed. And we're not doing the Lord's will by taking his life. The Lord's with us. He will not abandon us in this. And so he's able to still the desires of his men by pleading with them on the basis of the promises of God. And we have to recognize that and believe that about ourselves. When we choose to make this difficult decision... To be gentle and reasonable instead of uh, exacting justice on others or to lash out and argue with others about things you see that we may even readily and rightfully disagree with them about. We have to recognize that God will be with us when we make that decision. So the person who returns good for evil is not abandoning justice. He's not ignoring righteousness. He's saying God's going to straighten all this out and God will provide the basis from which I can do this without fear. He's simply putting it in God's hands. We go to the passage we referenced a few moments ago in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, If it's possible, as much as in you, live peaceably with all men. Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him a drink. For so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but rather overcome evil with good, Paul says. Now, the whole context of that passage as it goes into chapter 13 and talks about civil authorities is that God is in control. He is sovereign over all of this. He's not far away or unconcerned. He's involved in even the civil governments of men and the exacting of justice against the criminal. He's involved in all of those pursuits that we like put under the context of justice. And so that's what David, no doubt, you see, had in his mind in that cave was that God's in control here. This is God's work, not mine. God's nearby. He's not a far away. He's right here. The other element of that, the Lord being at hand, it may be a reference by the apostle that God is ready to judge. As it talks about the day of the Lord being at hand, or that it's nearby, the aspect that God's judgment is not some far away, distant, not ever going to happen event. That God is our judge, He's ever watchful, He's aware of what we do and the conduct and the treatment we have of others, and one day we'll be judged by that. 
And so we shouldn't go through life thinking we're going to get away with anything. Or that we can treat people whatever way we want, there won't be any consequences to it. One day we will have to answer to the judge because he's at hand. He is here. Now either one of those concepts, I think, is viable in the context of the situation. Both of those fit. Not only what David was doing in the cave, but what Jesus was doing at the cross and what you and I do in our personal relationships. To understand that God is not far away, that He's there with us, ever watchful, and that He's watching over our conduct. And we'll have to give, uh, you see, an accounting for that. And that when we make those decisions, in the context of those difficult decisions, He's there to support us, to provide for us the peace of mind that we need that Paul's going to go on and talk about. The aspect of not being anxious over the things of the world because even though we don't exact, try to exact justice on every evil in our life, we can live at peace. How important is this? in the whole scheme of things. You know, I don't know that there's any more important characteristic of the Christian than the aspect of submissiveness and in the same context what we're talking about tonight in gentleness. The character of Christ in the midst of adversity is the most profound and certainly the most diametrically opposing character that you and I see in the society in which we live and maybe anybody leaves in any society in which they live. To act like mere men and to retaliate to those who that, that treat us evil. To just go along and react to things that happen in our life without any perspective of principle is the way of the world. The Christian lives different than that. And so there's a lot of reasons why we need to take this seriously. This virtue has a lot to commend it. When we think about life, what would be the condition of our world if everyone learned to be reasonable and gentle? Everybody could enter into any situation where there was a disagreement, where there was a problem, where there was some type of strife, and they could enter into those difficult circumstances where there was a desire maybe to exact vengeance on someone else. And they could learn to be reasonable like David, to be gentle like Jesus. And what, how much more success would we be? It would be a different world, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be a different world. But on the spiritual plane, how much more success would God's people have in teaching the truth and bringing people back to the Lord, getting people to be submissive to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we learn to be reasonable and gentle, even towards those who oppose the gospel on every level. If that was the spirit by which the, Lord, the, the world around us would judge the veracity and the honesty and the truthfulness of the gospel, it would make all the difference. And so that's what Jesus, that's what Jesus and the apostles taught. When James and John said, you want us to call down lightning from heaven, burn these folks up, they don't like you. Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. You do not know what this is all about. This is about being like me, and that's not like me. That doesn't mean Jesus isn't going to judge evil. The Lord is at hand. But it does mean that there's a spirit and a gentleness that Paul's talking about here. There is a reasonableness... And there is, you see, a mildness and a softness that has to characterize the life of God's people. Or everything that they attempt to do will not be successful. Thank you for your attention. I think that when we think about Saul and David, one connection that maybe it's a different, maybe it's another sermon, is that if you take the characters of Saul and David that we've talked about so much tonight, and you put them into the gospel story, you recognize that Saul is you and I, and David is the Lord. You know, David is a man after God's own heart. So what are we doing? 
Well, we're fighting against God the whole time. And the whole time we're fighting against God, what's God doing to us? What's God doing for us? How is He reacting to us? He's gentle and He's kind and He's loving all through the whole process. He sees hope sometimes in situations where you and I would easily give up because Jesus knows that the Spirit of God has the ability to transform the human heart and make a person who does not love God, love God. To make a person who doesn't want to do good, to do good. To make a person who's not fit for the kingdom of God, ready for the kingdom of God. So the blood of Jesus Christ is available to you. And if you're not a Christian, we want to invite you to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news because God is gentle and He's kind and He's mild and He's reasonable. And what He says to you is, come to me and I will give you rest to your souls. So if you come to Jesus Christ in faith and you're willing to turn and repent of your sins and turn away from a life of, uh, and a desire to do what's wrong and commit your life to doing what is right, if you're willing to confess that Jesus Christ is your Savior and you're willing to be baptized in water, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, Paul said that it's a burial with Jesus Christ that you might rise to walk in newness of life. Now there is no resurrection without a death. And there is no resurrection without a burial. But with a death and a burial, resurrection is as sure is anything you could ever put your confidence in. When you rise out of the water, you are a new person. Maybe we can help you do that. Let's stand and sing.